There's a man prophesied in the Old Testament, a man whose birth was announced by the angel Gabriel, a man born without sin, a man proclaimed in all four of the Gospels, a man who took disciples and said to repent and believe. Now, that's a pretty good description of Jesus, but I'm actually talking about a different man, John the Baptist. Hi, I'm Chloe Linger, and this is The Catholic Podcast. I'm here today with Joe Heschmeyer, who's the author of Shameless Popery. He works for Holy Family School of Faith here in Kansas City, Kansas. And we're in the middle of our Lenten series, and we're getting ready to dig into our next episode. We've looked through the eyes of Mary. We've seen what we shouldn't do with Judas. We've talked about pride with Peter. And now we're here in this episode talking about John the Baptist. You know, I think John is an unusual choice, Mm -hmm. an unusual figure in some ways. People listening might say, why are you covering John in Lent when John is dead by the time any of these events happen? Mm -hmm. But we'd argue that he is an incredibly important character. He's often overlooked, and so we decided to dedicate an entire podcast to him. He's a very Lenten person. Yes, (laughs) a surprise. Yeah, he fits very well with this series. So we have three takeaways for today's episode. Joe, what are we wanting people who are listening to take away from this episode? Number one, John is an important figure to listen to Mm -hmm. and to emulate this Lent. Mm -hmm. Number two, John's message is one of the bad news of our sinfulness. But in this way, we can be prepared for the good news of Jesus Christ. You know, we should take this time in Lent to repent, Mm -hmm. to turn to confession, and to really enter into Easter holy. And then three, we must decrease he must increase. It's this beautiful, pithy line from John the Baptist <laughs> that summarizes so much of what the life of sanctity is all about. Mm-hmm. Part one, the mysterious import of John the Baptist. When we think of Lent and we think of the Passion of Christ, John the Baptist isn't a character that comes to mind readily. Why is it important to recognize John's often overlooked role in the life of Christ? I think one of the central reasons is simply because he plays such a big role Mm -hmm. in the Gospels in a way that we often don't notice. Um, So for example, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all mention him, and Mm -hmm. St. Paul mentions him in the book of Acts. Mm -hmm. Now, if you were to name the number of people who get mentioned by Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Paul, uh, it's actually pretty slim. Yeah. So he's given a quite a prominent role in terms of the number of times and places in which he's mentioned. But even more than that, so John 1 begins very beautifully. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And it's this beautiful exposition of the divinity of Christ. But he keeps seemingly interrupting it to tell us about John the Baptist, which is surprising. He's just said that Christ is a light that shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then he says, a man named John was sent from God. Pause. Complete reroute. Side tab off a story. Yeah. Right. Like, at first when you encounter it, it just seems, like, very abrupt. Mm -hmm. And, in fact, um, a lot of Bibles will have the first five verses written, like, poetry. And so they'll be set off, you know, kind of the indentation of poetry. Mm -hmm. And then... You just have this section from 6 through 9 that's just prose. Like, oh, by the way, (laughs) let me tell you about John for a second. And then there's, yeah, those three verses about Mm -hmm. John, um, that he was not the light, but came to testify to the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. And then he gets back to talking about Christ. Yeah. But then in 15, 
he again seems to get rerouted and says, John testified to him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, The one who's coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Mm -hmm. And so twice, just within this short prologue, uh, you have these kind of diversions to talking about John. And then as soon as he's done with the prologue, in verse 19, he goes from 19 to 34, talking about John the Baptist and, and John's role of proclaiming Christ, encountering Christ, and pointing people to him. Mm -hmm. So John plays like a really big role. And it's not just um, in the Gospel of John. If you look at how Luke 1 begins, we're talking about the birth of John the Baptist being detailed before we even get to the birth of Christ. Yeah. And so the evangelists, including John, are really big on the role of John the Baptist. And it's not just the evangelists. It's not just St. Paul. We also find Jesus calling him the greatest of those born of women in Matthew eleven eleven. But it's not just the evangelists and Jesus. Also, the angel Gabriel announces his miraculous conception and his birth. And he does this in Luke 1 in front of the Holy of Holies. Yeah. So the high priest is in front of the holiest place in all of Judaism. And an angel shows up and tells the high priest that his wife is going to have John the Baptist. Yeah. Not many of us have come into the world no. with angelic enunciations. <laughs> it's quite a birth announcement. Normally it, our, ours are just Facebook announcements. Now. Exactly. It certainly <laughs> it, it beats the kind of letter invite yes. or the baby shower <laughs> Facebook post. Yeah, he really uh, did it in style. Yes. But it, the birth of John the Baptist, a lot of people don't know this. And we'll talk about why this is more mm-hmm. in part three. But the birth of John the Baptist is one of only three birthdays celebrated in the church. And to get a sense of how important that is, the other two are Jesus and Mary. Yeah, he's ranking up there with the... In terms of, yeah, his birth is as celebrated. Mm -hmm. And now there's something, I'll just tease it a little bit. There's something all three of those people have in common Mm -hmm. that no one else has, which is why we celebrate only those three birthdays. Hint, hint. Hint, hint, exactly. (laughs) So what do we actually know about John the Baptist and the life that he led, especially through scripture passages about him? Well, we actually know weirdly little about yeah. him. We know strangely little about his person, and we know strangely little about his message. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about both of those things soon. Um, but I think one of the reasons we know so little is that a lot of his preaching seems to have been done before Christ's public ministry mm-hmm. and what we sometimes call the hidden years of Christ. So after the finding in the temple... Mm-hmm. Until the time he's 30, there's just nothing written about Jesus' life. And it seems to be the later part of that period in which John the Baptist was really active. So there are these references to what appears to have been very powerful preaching by John. But the evangelists, they're not ultimately telling a story about John. Mm -hmm. And John's not telling a story about John. Yeah, yeah, another important point. And so we get just little hints that there was a powerful proclamation here. And we'll talk a little bit about what that message is, but we know uh, surprisingly little about it. By the time Jesus enters the scene publicly, Mm -hmm. by the time the evangelists really turn their attention to him, John's career is wrapping up. Um, He's arrested, and not long after that, he's beheaded. Mm -hmm. So we're still left with this question, like, who is this man? Right. Uh, Why is he important enough for a podcast episode? Mm -hmm. Uh, Why are we doing a podcast episode about him in Lent, given that he's dead before... The Passion of Christ. Why is he important enough for an angelic annunciation? And why is he an important enough figure that four different Gospels, as well as Acts, mention him? Part 2. The Lenten Message of John the Baptist. John is out in the desert, 
He's preaching the coming of the Lord, he's wearing camel's hair, and he's eating locusts. What exactly is he telling the people who come to hear his message? One of the clearest descriptions of John's message that we get is at the beginning of Matthew 3. Mm -hmm. It says, In those days came John the Baptist, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather girdle around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Okay, so let's unpack that Mm -hmm. a little bit. First, we have another reference to how important John the Baptist is. Right. He's a figure who is prophesied in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. So the number of people who fall on that list is fleetingly small. And so, and not just once, Jesus describes him as Elijah who is to come. Yeah. And so there's actually multiple Old Testament prophecies about John. And so his message is one of repentance and one of the coming kingdom and one of baptism. And he does this in a real penitential spirit. We see it even in his wardrobe. So this is really a Lenten proclamation. Yeah. I mean, if you were to say, when in church are you going to hear, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand? Well, hopefully all year round right. in a certain sense. It's a very timeless message. But... but the special time where the church really accentuates the need for repentance, the need for penance, and the need to turn towards baptism happens during Lent. Yeah, and not only baptism, but also the other sacraments, for instance, like confession. We hear that preached a lot about from the pulpit during during Lent as well. Exactly. And, and the church fathers draw a connection between those two. Mm-hmm. That it's the... So if baptism is the entry into the ship of the church, mm-hmm. confession is the plank after you've made shipwrecked of your faith. <laughs> and so it's drawing you back to yep. the ship, even if you've just really wrecked things. Right. I mean, it sounds like you end up in a bad spot, but it's showing that, you know, there really is this, this deep connection mm-hmm. between those sacraments particularly. That it, you can't be rebaptized, but you can be restored to your baptismal purity. Mm-hmm. So our Protestant brothers and sisters have a commonly held belief that baptism is just a symbol. And that doesn't match up with what Catholics believe of baptism as a sacrament. So how does John's baptism, first of the repentant people of Jerusalem, and then his baptism of Christ, help define what our view of baptism is as Catholics? Yeah, so John's baptism, which we just heard referred to in Matthew 3 is a baptism of repentance that's ultimately symbolic. Right. No one's saying that it's actually giving you grace or giving you a, a new character in Christ. You don't become a new Christian through it. Right. This is before Christ's public ministry has even begun in mm-hmm. earnest. And so it it's what Protestants believe baptism is in a way. Like if you wanted to say what is it, and now, okay, we should really step back here and say some Protestants. Right. Yeah, I can't lump them all together. There's a lot of beliefs out there when it comes to... Baptism. So the kind of Protestant we're talking about right here would be like Hillsong Church. This is a church where Justin Bieber was baptized. In a bathtub. It's, yeah, in a bathtub. <laughs> it's actually a, a very large, popular mm-hmm. megachurch. Yep. And so from their website, they say, Baptism is a symbol. It's meant to show the world that you love, trust, and have put your hope in Christ. It's like a wedding ring. And they go on to say, let's say I'm not married right now. But if I put a wedding ring on my finger, would that make me married? No, of course not. Similarly, I can be baptized in a church, but that doesn't make me a true believer in Christ. Imagine that I really was married, though. My husband and I really did go through the marriage ceremony, 
but I just didn't have my ring on my finger. Would that mean I wasn't married? No way, of course, I'd still be married. Similarly, I can be a believer in Christ and not baptized, and my sins are still paid for and forgiven by God. And so, uh, by this theory, you don't have to be baptized to be saved, and getting baptized doesn't make you saved. And so they conclude from this, baptism does not make you a believer. It shows that you already are one. Baptism does not save you. Only your faith in Christ does that. Well, what's striking about this is that's a very bad view of Christian baptism. 1 Peter 3.21 explicitly says, baptism now saves you. But ironically, it's a really good view of John's baptism. Yeah, because yeah. John's baptism was all about a symbolic Sim declaration of faith. Yep. And it wasn't a sacrament. It was a preparation for the sacraments. Right. And so it didn't do anything of itself. But if you look at what the New Testament says about Christian baptism, it's yeah. very different. And the easiest way to see this is in Acts 19. Mm -hmm. I mentioned in the last section that uh, Paul clearly knew about John the Baptist because there are references to this in Acts. Well, in the first seven verses of Acts 19, we see the contrast between these two kinds of baptism. Mm -hmm. John's symbolic baptism and Christian baptism, which actually does something. So it says, When Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No. We've never even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. Mm. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that mm -hmm. is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 of them in all. So quite clearly, you have a symbolic baptism in which the Holy Spirit isn't bestowed mm -hmm. sacramentally. But that's a prefigurement. It's a forerunner. It's a preparation for Christian baptism, which the Holy Spirit actually does come down yeah, yeah. on the believers. And of course, where do we see this? Where do we see this first happen? In Jesus' own baptism, by John. Right. Yeah, it's rude. Yeah, his his baptism is then gives us a, a different view of what baptism is in the Christian life with the baptism of Christ. Yeah, so in Mark 1, mm -hmm. um, 9 through 11, it talks about Jesus coming from Nazareth and being baptized by John in the Jordan. When he comes up out of the water, the heavens open up, the Holy Spirit descends upon him, and a voice comes from heaven saying, this is my beloved son, or you're my beloved son, with mm -hmm. you I'm well pleased. So we have the Father sending the Holy Spirit on the Son. It's a Trinitarian appearance. Right. And it's tied to baptism mm -hmm. in a very obvious way. And so when you look at how the Christians speak about Christian baptism, unlike John's baptism, uh, you see very clearly this repeated reference. So like take Acts 2, for example. Uh, Peter gets up and he has a message similar to John's, but with an important difference in how he describes baptism. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's right there. It's not just for repentance of your sin, where you announced the turning away from it. It's for the forgiveness of your sins. And mm -hmm. you will receive the Holy Spirit. That's the promise. Mm -hmm. And that's the difference between the two kinds of baptism. Right. And if baptism was just meant to be symbolic, then we wouldn't see the change of that after Christ's baptism and the apostles after Christ wouldn't have needed to make this differentiation. Right. I mean, if, if it's only a symbol, then the obvious question is, what in the world is going on in Acts 19? Right. <laughs> like, why are they talking about the Holy Spirit in the context of baptism mm -hmm, mm -hmm. if it's just, 
we had a pretty good symbol, but now that we know about Jesus, we can have an even better symbol. Right. And so it's clearly a, a reference to the coming down of the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. and baptism. And it's pretty hard to understand the passage otherwise. Right. So we're in the middle of our Lenten series and we're really focusing on preparing our hearts for Easter celebration. What particular significance of John's message of baptism does that have for us who are preparing for the celebration of Easter, especially for those who are listening who are preparing through our CIA and our catechumens and are, are getting ready to prepare for their baptism? Yeah, so we just had what might have been perceived as like a negative thing mm-hmm. with some Protestants. So let me say something very positive. There's what's sometimes called the bad news, good news model of mm-hmm. evangelization. And it's this idea that in proclaiming the gospel, you need to talk about the bad news of our sinfulness mm-hmm. before you can talk about the good news of Jesus Christ in some sense. So Christ comes into a world wounded and corrupted by sin. Mm-hmm. He's the divine physician. But if you don't know that you're sick and that you need a healer, then you don't know what Christ can really offer you. Mm-hmm. So it's only when you know, like, oh, I'm actually pretty broken, pretty messed up, and pretty in need of forgiveness. And this is the offer of redemption that Jesus gives us. So John's message isn't the end. You know, it's the mm-hmm. diagnosis. Mm-hmm. We are sinners. And Jesus is the cure. But for the cure to make any sense, you need the diagnosis. Right. So that's the relationship between Lent and Easter. Mm-hmm. It's the relationship between John and Jesus. It's the bad news leading to the good news. And so obviously catechumens who are actually going to be baptized, they get to experience this in an incredible and exciting yeah. way. Because they really get to walk towards this Christian baptism. Mm. And the rest of us who already are baptized can kind of relive that in our own way. This Mm -hmm. is why confession is so big during Lent. It's a turning away from sins, not just for repentance, but also for forgiveness. Mm -hmm. So we can enter that Easter joy and re-embrace our our baptismal character in its fullness. Right, especially for those of us who have been baptized. I think this is driven home in the renewal of baptism promises that we pray at Mass, um, especially in the Easter Vigil. Yeah, so Easter really is a season associated with baptism. And you'll see it in the sprinkling rite at the beginning of Mass. Yeah, They go around splashing everyone with holy water. (laughs) And it's the holy water that we were baptized in. Right. And so it's a reminder, like, you are a baptized Christian. Mm -hmm. You should rejoice in that, Mm -hmm. and your life should be characterized by that. Part 3. The Lenten Person of John the Baptist In John's life, many mistake him for the coming Messiah, but he's actually preparing the way for the coming of the Lord. And there are some unique parallels in the birth, life, and death of John the Baptist and the birth, life, and death of Christ. So, as we mentioned at the very top of the episode, Mm -hmm. the angel Gabriel announces both births. Mm -hmm. That's a pretty striking parallel just right away. Um, And you also have the fact that both of them are born without sin. Now, this is something a lot of people, including a lot of Catholics, don't know. But remember, in Luke 1, Mm -hmm. in the visitation... Mary goes into the hill country of Judea. She's pregnant with Jesus. Mm-hmm. And she goes and visits Elizabeth, who's pregnant with John the Baptist. And John the Baptist, we're told, is filled with the Holy Spirit and dances before the Lord. Now, we talked more about the, the significance of the visitation broadly mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. terms of the parallel to the Ark of the Covenant yep. in the episode on Mary mm-hmm. and viewing Lent through the eyes of Mary. But here, just realize that being filled with the Holy Spirit means that John has been purified of original sin. That's the teaching of the church. Mm-hmm. Because the rest of us, we're born with original sin, and we're in need of baptism. Mm-hmm. Baptism is the entryway into the faith. And it's through baptism, as we just talked about, 
that the Holy Spirit enters our lives in the sense of a Trinitarian indwelling. Right. Where the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit dwell within your soul. So John has that in a profound way before his birth. He doesn't get that by right. But because of the special role that he has, the Holy Spirit prepares him, even as a fetus, to proclaim Jesus Christ. It's an incredibly pro-life message, yeah, I'd say, as an very aside. Much so. yeah. But it's also a recognition that John is born without original sin. So, blessed John Henry Cardinal Newman, mm-hmm. in a letter that he wrote, he describes it this way. He says, Mary may be called, as it were, a daughter of Eve unfallen. You believe with us that St. John Baptist had grace given to him three months before his birth, at the time of the Blessed Virgin visited his mother. And accordingly, he was not immaculately conceived because he was alive before grace came to him. But Our Lady's case only differs from his in this respect, that to her the grace of God came not three months merely before her birth, but from the first moment of her being, as it had been given to Eve. Okay, so, you know, when we talk about the Immaculate Conception, sometimes Protestants will say, well, it seems unfair that Mary should be born without original sin when the rest of us have to suffer with it. Okay, understandable. Right. If you expect God to treat everyone identically, uh, then you apparently haven't read the parable of the talents. Right. right. In which he's very clear that although he's just, he bestows his gifts as he sees fit. We should talk just for a second about how those two things are possible. In the case of the parable of the talents, I think you see it pretty clearly. Right. So he gives one guy five, Mm -hmm. one two, and one just one talent. But the expectations that he has are apportioned based on the gifts that he's given. So Luke 12, 48 has a great line about to whom much has been given, much will be expected. Mm-hmm. And so, the you know, as Uncle Ben from Spider-Man yeah. would say, with great power comes great responsibility. Mm-hmm. That's justice. Yeah, yeah. This isn't just a consequence of the fall. Mm-hmm. We sometimes think about inequality as something that's just necessarily evil. And that's just not true. In Eden, there's inequality. In Eden, there's the order of creation where you have higher and lower beings. Mm -hmm. In the angelic hierarchy, there are higher and lower angels. We talk about archangels, Mm -hmm. thrones and dominions, Mm -hmm. powers and principalities, cherubim and seraphim. These are not all just interchangeable peons or something. There's a a full hierarchy in the original sense of proximity to God. Mm -hmm. That's what hierarchy means. Right. And so that exists, but the greater and most gifted are given those gifts for the sake of those lower. That's true of Mary, and that's probably a, a point worth drawing out in a separate episode sometime down the road. <laughs> but it's also true of John the Baptist. Like, John the Baptist's cleansing from original sin before birth isn't because God just likes him better or, like, you know, just prefers He's his cousin favorite. and his mom. Right, right. <laughs> Keeping it in the family. Exactly. Yeah. Well, it's, it's not that. Mm-mm. Rather... Mary and John both have special roles. Right. And these are roles for which they're prepared from before their birth because they're people who in different ways are set aside. One as the new Ark of the Covenant Mm -hmm. and one as the new Elijah proclaiming the coming of Christ. So we have talked about the parallels of Jesus and John when it comes to their birth. They're both proclaimed by an angel. They're both born without sin. Now let's talk a little bit about their message and their death. Can you tell us about what scripture has to say about that? Yeah, so we mentioned in Matthew 3 that the message that John was going around proclaiming was repent for the kingdom of God, or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mm -hmm. That's in Matthew 3, verse 2. Well, that is remarkably similar 
to Jesus's own message. So if you look at Mark 1, Mm -hmm. verses 14 to 15, it says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So Jesus just picks up where John left off. Mm -hmm. But there's a critical difference. It's not the kingdom of God is coming, but it's here. Yeah. John's is more expecting something about to happen. Mm -hmm. And Jesus's is more proclaiming that it is currently happening. Right. But the two messages go hand in glove. John is proclaiming the coming of Christ. Jesus is proclaiming the fulfillment of John's message. And so he's drawing those connections pretty explicitly. And of course, Mark saying this happens after John is arrested is also pointing to the common message that the two of them have. So let's talk about that arrest and how even the arrest and execution Mm -hmm. of John the Baptist prefigures and parallels Jesus' own arrest and execution. So John and Jesus both find themselves on the wrong end of the law. John is commentating on Herod's adultery, which we find in Mark 6, 17 to 20. And let me just read it, actually. So it says, For Herod had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, Mm -hmm. because he'd married her. For John said to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Mm -hmm. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to kill him. But she could not, for Herod feared John knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and kept him safe. When he heard him, he was much perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Yeah, so like listening to these parallels, when you look at the coming passion of Christ as we're preparing for Holy Week, John finds himself in a situation where he is addressing a higher power, Herod, who is sinning, and he's calling him out on it, and he's giving him tough love. And Herod, even though he's being told he's doing wrong, there's some sort of, like, there's an inclination towards the good. He he still knows that John is righteous. He wants to listen to him. And similarly, we'll see that with Jesus. Jesus is in talking to Pilate, and Pilate has a, a desire to get to know Jesus. He's hesitant to put him to death because he knows that he's a good man. We'll see John is eventually he's he's beheaded and it's because of peer pressure like even though Herod thinks that John is a, a good man and he wants to listen to him he is gets stuck in a sticky situation where Herodias asks for the head of John the Baptist on a platter and eventually you know Herod crashes to peer pressure we see Pilate we have the crowd clamoring for Christ's death you know if you're you know friend of Caesar if you don't you know have this this man put to death and so he crashes to peer pressure as well and so we're seeing these parallels particularly in the Holy Week happenings of of Jesus and his death and the death of John before him. And we'll get much more in depth on this in our next episode when we talk about Lent through the eyes of Pilate. Mm -hmm. But it's worth pointing out, like you said, these are both men who, from a public worldly perspective, are very powerful figures. Right. They wield a lot of authority. Mm -hmm. And yet we find that they're just constantly led around by outside entrance against what they actually want themselves. Yep. So Herod isn't saying, I hate the John, I hate John the Baptist and I want him dead. Mm-mm. Herod is weak. He's a slave to his own passions. Yep. He's a slave to this woman who he's having an affair with. Mm-hmm. And so those kind of lower influences overcome him. And then ultimately, like you said, he's a slave to peer pressure. Mm-hmm. He publicly says uh, to Herodias' daughter, ask me for whatever you wish and I'll grant it. And so he rashly, in a spirit of lust, yep. just says, oh, anything you want. Like, just yeah. ask me anything. 
And she says she wants the head of John the Baptist on the platter. Mm -hmm. And now he's made a promise publicly that he's going to do anything for her. Yeah. And so, obviously, <laughs> morally, he ought to have backed out of uh -huh. that. But he doesn't mm -hmm. because he's he's given his word, not because he's such a man of honor that he's no. going to keep his word, but because he knows he'll look weak right. if he gives his word and goes back on it. Yep. But the irony here is that, of course, he's being much weaker. Yeah. Because now he's just been duped by Herodias and, and the daughter, mm -hmm. Salome. And, and then he ends up just doing something he really doesn't want to do. Mm -hmm. Killing a prophet that he knows is holy and righteous. Yep. Doing something he knows is evil. And he just, he capitulates. He gives in. Mm -hmm. And so he ends up looking like a very weak figure. Mm -hmm. The same thing we find with Pontius Pilate. Yep. He says to Jesus, do you not know that I have power to release you and power to crucify you? Mm -hmm. But ultimately he doesn't wield the power. He doesn't do what he actually wants to do. Mm -hmm. Even when he crucifies Jesus, it isn't because this is what he wants to do with his might. Mm -hmm. It's because he's afraid of getting turned into his boss. And there's an interestingly an interesting dissimilarity. Mm -hmm. In Matthew 27, 19, it says when he, Pilate, was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent a message to him that said, don't do anything to this good man, because today I've suffered terribly because of a dream about him. So the problem for Herod's side is that he's listening to this woman who's not really his wife. And Pilate should have listened to his wife. Right. But we see in both cases they're not taking good counsel. They're submitting to peer pressure. And they're doing something in both cases that they know is wrong. Right. Or so much so that we'll see Pilate like wash his hands of it. Yeah, he tries to... Not be in charge. He tries to say, hey, it's somebody else's problem. Power. Yeah. Yeah. I was teaching a religion class for uh -huh. third graders in Italy. And the kids were just really upset that Pilate was being treated as a bad guy. They said, oh, it's not his fault. They told me he had to. Uh -huh. And I was like, no, no, no. Like, that's the point. That's the message. Right. You don't get to just say, the people around me said I have to do this evil thing. This thing I know is wrong and mm -hmm. therefore I'm going to do it. So the weak-willedness of both Pilate and Herod is really contrasted with the boldness of John the Baptist and the boldness of Jesus. Right. They have a meekness to them. Jesus stands there silently, but it's not weakness. It's not capitulation. It's an incredible towering strength. Yeah. And so the fact that neither of them will back down an inch because they're telling the truth, they don't do it with an abundance of words. We don't hear John the Baptist saying a whole lot. Whatever he was saying was really interesting to Herod. Yeah. And Pilate is basically begging Jesus to say more. And he and he ends up with this sort of like, what is truth response when Jesus gives him just enough to really interest him, really say, okay, there's something more here. Mm -hmm. So it's a fascinating parallel because from a worldly perspective, the guys on trial are the weak ones, and the guys in the judge's seat are the strong ones. The guys who have the power to put you in prison, mm -hmm. the power to crucify you, the power to cut off your head. And yet, as we see so often in politics and in the world today, the people who are presented as having that authority often are, are being pressured into doing things they may not even be morally okay with themselves. Mm -hmm. So we've seen these parallels between the life of Christ and the life of John the Baptist. What is John the Baptist himself, this, this Christ-like figure, this he's preceding Jesus, he's foreshadowing what's going to come. What does he have to say about himself? Yeah, so you might imagine, here's this guy who's proclaimed in the Old Testament as one who's going to come into the mm -hmm. world. A guy whose birth is announced by an angel. You might imagine he's got a pretty lofty opinion mm -hmm. of himself. And that he'd struggle with pride, as so many of the followers of Christ do. You right. know, the New Testament is not shy about the fact 
that the apostles really struggle with pride. Even yep. at the Last Supper, we see them arguing over which of them is the greatest. Right. John's not like that. Mm-mm. John is this incredibly humble figure. And he's humble probably because he's really given himself over to a life of penance. And has really drawn himself away from, you know, even world... Like, the most worldly influence he appears to ever have mm-hmm. is being in Herod's prison. Yeah. Where right. King Herod is actually listening to him personally. Herod, who probably wouldn't have been brave enough to go out to the Jordan, right. is happy to have John brought to him. <laughs> Convenient. So the great line for John the Baptist, mm-hmm. and there's a, a fun kind of parallel to this in the liturgical year, is John 3.30, where he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. Mm-hmm. So I say there's a fun parallel in the liturgical year. Well, if you notice in Luke 1, mm-hmm. it mentioned that there's a six-month difference between the birth of John and the birth of Jesus. The angel Gabriel refers to this. Mm-hmm. So it means, you know, we celebrate Jesus' birthday on December 25th, right. which is about the darkest part of the year, mm-hmm. and the light begins to increase. It's just on the upswing from yep. like four days before. Well, John's nativity is celebrated six months apart from that mm-hmm. on June 25th, right after the summer solstice. And so the light starts to decrease. That's so neat. And so you have that he must... Mm -hmm. Increase, I must decrease thing, even in the way the calendar is set up. That's so cool. I love how God has like, and it's just like, oh, that lined up perfectly. Like it's providence. It's not luck that that happens. Right. And so whether it was intended by the people who set the liturgical calendar or just intended by God himself, either way, it's a good reminder Mm -hmm. built into the year that this is a time all year round where we should be making ourselves less and less of an obstacle Mm -hmm. to being the saints that God wants us to be. When it comes to our own life and to evangelization, it can be easy for us to fall into the same trap that the apostles fell into, and that of pride, and to think, you know, we're responsible for the conversion of souls instead of giving God, God that honor. And John the Baptist's humility is just a really good model. So how do we remain humble and point the way to Christ instead of like stealing the spotlight for ourselves? Yeah, I think just remembering that God's the one who does all the conversion. He may or may not choose to use you as an instrument through which to bring about someone else's conversion. Mm-hmm. You should be ready and willing to be that instrument. You know, you don't want to resist the will of God. Mm-hmm. You don't want to obstruct it. And the most common way we obstruct it is by just not being bold. By not having the hard conversations that John the Baptist was clearly willing to have. Right. But another way we obstruct it is by making it about us. Mm-hmm. So we'll say, well, we're not really good enough to, to do it. Yeah. Now, to be sure... John the Baptist's message of repentance is more credible because he lives a penitential lifestyle. Mm -hmm. He lives what he's proclaiming. He practices what he's preaching. And when we don't do that, it's true. We serve as an obstacle to the gospel. Right. But the truth of the gospel isn't dependent upon you and me. Mm -hmm. And so we can't just take the fact that we may not be the saints we want to be as an excuse to not do the thing God's asking us to do. Right. (laughs) The way we're going to become the saints God wants us to be Mm -hmm. is by doing the things he asks us to do. There's like an important acknowledgement of what the word humility is too. And there's a tendency towards false humility. I know I've struggled with this. It's like humility isn't thinking less of yourself, like thinking, oh, I'm not good enough. I'm not, this doesn't matter because I'm not there yet. I'm not a saint. It's like thinking of yourself less. Or like putting more of that emphasis on God and knowing that you're a channel for him to work through and you're not, you know, you're not doing the work. You're just open to him working through you. Yeah, brilliantly put. You know, all these times we hear about John being the new Elijah Mm -hmm. or being the one whom Isaiah proclaimed. John's not the one telling us that. Right. Jesus tells us that. And the evangelists tell us that. 
So if you lived your life where you're not constantly proclaiming your own importance, but are just proclaiming Jesus and his importance, let Jesus talk about how important you are <laughs> yeah. later on. <laughs> yeah, don't don't be that claiming that. Yeah, 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 don't put that burden on yourself. <laughs> don't be trying to claim that authority. Yep. Um, and if you just live in that. But then also recognizing, as you said, mm-hmm. recognizing your own limitations. Maybe he'll choose for you to plant a seed that somebody else waters mm-hmm. and someone else gets to reap the harvest. Yep. You may never get to see the consequence of your actions this side of eternity. Right. But you're not doing it for worldly success. You're mm-hmm. not doing mm-hmm. it for success here below. Obviously, everyone you want to talk to about Jesus, you know, you're hoping it'll convert or they'll come to some deeper relationship. Mm-hmm. And when you see that happen, it's really gratifying. Yeah. But you're not just doing it because you're assured of the result. And you don't go into it being assured this is definitely going to work. You are just are faithful to God mm-hmm. and play whatever role you're supposed to play. You play it. Yeah, you play it. And then maybe you never get to see how it turns out. Mm-hmm. So there are three things that we should really take away from this. Mm-hmm. First, John is someone we need to be listening to and someone we need to be imitating this land. Uh, the second is that whole thing we talked about, the bad news and the good news. Yeah, so we can't celebrate the joy of Easter without first recognizing why we need Easter. And so especially for us this Lent, going to confession and recognizing the importance of baptism. If you're coming into the church through the RCA program, the beauty of that. And also for those of us who have been baptized, recognizing the importance of renewing our baptismal vows. And then for all of us, the need to decrease so that Christ can increase. Mm-hmm. So we don't serve as an obstacle. Thanks for coming on the show, Joe. Thanks for your time this afternoon. So this week we really paralleled the the lives of John and Jesus and looking at how John interacts with Herod and Christ interacts with Pilate. We're going to flesh that out next week and our episode will be lent through the eyes of Pilate. So let's close in a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.